It's good to sit with that thought as we open up the word this morning, just to really think about our identity as being beloved sons and daughters of God. And every week that we gather in this building, um, we come in probably with a whole bunch of other labels, things we've been called by people, uh, maybe things that we call ourselves, maybe things that people called us growing up that we just sort of replay in our minds. So what a powerful thing to start our morning really getting centered on who God is, that he's our good father and who we are, that we're, we're his beloved children. Well, we're going to start this morning uh, the way I would imagine any New Testament church to start, and that is to open our Bibles and to take a rubber band. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, and I need each of you, go ahead and grab the whole bag, and I need each of you to grab a rubber band uh, and just have this make its way to the back, and uh, I need that bag back at the end because we have a second service going on. We are in a, uh, a series called The Good Doctor, and it's the Gospel of Luke that we're looking at. And what we're seeing today is that the good doctor, Jesus, is healing today. And in our vernacular, it would be people looking at him and wanting to sue him for malpractice. So Luke chapter 6, if you're looking at your pew Bible, it's page 809. Today we're looking at work and Sabbath and remembering that Sabbath is not only rest, but Sabbath is gifted to us, catch this, for rejuvenating play. And if you think about it, we have in our midst today, uh, like we do every Sunday, we have experts in different fields. I believe that there's enough humility we could learn from just about anyone. So here's the experts at work, the adults in the room. Adults are expert at work and getting things done and deadlines and to-dos. And I know there's varying degrees, but that's generally where experts, uh, where, where their expertise lie. You know what kids are really good at? Kids, you're good at playing. You guys know how to play. This morning, walking from the back of the church to the front of the church, my two eight-year-olds played. You know what I was doing? I was working. I was walking in, getting stuff done, checking on things, doing things. And so, kids, you're experts at playing. We need your expertise here. But Sabbath is not just about rejuvenating play. It's also about rest. And we have teens in our presence. They are experts at rest. They're so good at sleeping. And so think about it. We need each other. This morning we have experts in these various fields. And if we're humble enough, we could all learn from one another. Now, if you remember last week, I, I decided not to make it a five-hour sermon. I split it in half. So we caught the first half of the sermon last week. And the second half is going to come this week. But by way of quick review, we talked about rule keeping, right? And the fact that some, when they see the sign, they immediately are going, but, 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 and they can give all these great reasons of why you should suddenly pick up goats, right? That's the rule breaker in you. Rule breakers tend to go through life, not only bumping into barriers, but smashing right through them, actually looking for barriers to to smash through, because there's probably not good reasons for having them. Others in the room see this sign And no matter what argument you could give for picking up a goat, they would think in their minds, you know, someone's not going to go through the trouble of putting up that sign and making a rule without good reason. So we should just follow that rule without question. So you don't go into life bumping into barriers. You stay well clear of fences because they're there for a reason. Here's the big idea from last week. 
your life is more than the lines and rules that shape it. Your life is so much more than that. So don't seek your life by always stepping over the lines and showing what a rebel you are. And don't seek your life by always keeping within the lines. Here's the deal. You'll lose it either way if that's your identity. One is indulgence. The other is pious religion. And both of them are lifeless. Here's the central truth. So important, I wrote it down for you in your handout so you didn't have to. That life in God is not bound. Indulgence and religion are both enslaving taskmasters who kill. Rebels are driven not to conform. Perfectionists are driven not to disappoint. Probably the reality is that you have a little bit of that in, in, in you, but you may have a tendency toward one over the other. I want you to listen from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This is from the, the translation, uh, the message by Eugene Peterson. But this is a man who, who tried everything in life. He had the wealth and means to go and kind of check out the boundaries of things. Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 7.15. He says, I've seen it all in my brief and pointless life. Ecclesiastes is not a happy book necessarily. Here, a good person cut down in the middle of doing good. There, a bad person living a long life of sheer evil. So don't knock yourself out being good and don't go overboard being wise. Believe me, you won't get anything out of it. But don't press your luck by being bad either. And don't be reckless. Why die needlessly? I think he's getting at the heart of if you find your identity you'll end up in pious, cold religion, rule-keeping, or you will end up a rebel, which stepping outside the lines is sure fun for a while, and then it catches up to you. What Jesus wants to do, he's a good, good father. He wants to take us by our chin gently and lift our gaze to something other than lines and rules. Why? Because our life is so much more than the lines and rules that make it up. Christianity is not about rules, but a relationship. Now, we have many parents and many kids in here. Lots of opinions on rules. Am I right? Some rules, some in the room think are fantastic and should be followed implicitly at all times. And others in the room that might think those are terrible rules. And you all live in the same house. That's what makes life so interesting. So just like the rules that I give to my kids, I make up and dream up rules with my wife Because I love and care deeply for my kids. Parents, isn't this where your heart is at? Isn't that why we make up rules? Isn't that why we develop things? Why we go through the trouble of thinking through what's going to be a rule, what's not, and then trying to enforce that. That's the heart behind it. But unlike the rules that I give to my kids, God's rules are perfect. Why? Because he sees perfectly. He loves perfectly. He never has to change his rule. James says this, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father with whom there's no shifting shadow. He doesn't need to change because he doesn't get more information later on like us parents do. Now, just like my home and the church, siblings have a tendency of fighting over the rules. And they say things like this. Well, Dad said... 
When really dad didn't say, that's the sibling's interpretation of what dad said. And now they're enforcing it on other siblings. Does this sound vaguely familiar in anyone else's home? This goes on all the time in my home, a half mile from here, and in my home here in this building. This is church life. This is family life. So it's a, it's a picture that we're a family of God when we're doing this. But there are some corrective measures that Jesus wants to talk to us about today. Here's the rule in question. It's the whole idea of Sabbath. Now, I'm not going to go over in detail uh, what that is, but we're going to do a quick review in just a second. But here's the question we looked at last week. Should we serve the rules or the ruler? Now, the answer seems utterly plain and obvious. But rules have a way of taking over. They did then and they do now. God made us for relationships, not for rules. And your relationships, my relationships, suffer when they become all about the rules. I don't want anyone to nudge, point, or clear their throat in the next few moments, okay? But some of you, when you go on family vacations, had a dad or a mom or someone in charge whose head was in the map the whole time. Now, maps are old school, I know that, so now it's GPS and touching, right? But basically, they are concentrated and concerned on not only their map, which consists of a ton of lines, by the way, but also their spreadsheet, right? And they're cross-referencing the schedule they need to keep and the things that they need to do and, and this and that. And what happens is this. At the end of the journey, they've missed it all. Not only have they missed it all, they've actually made it miserable for everyone in the car with them. Why? Because they thought the vacation, they thought the whole trip was about lines, and they stared, they focused on that. They glanced briefly at other things, but they made, they made the whole thing about spreadsheets and lines and rules. You guys did so good at not nudging, clearing your throat, or pointing. Good job! If you're feeling convicted... Maybe it's time to throw away the map for the next trip. Just saying. Here's what Jesus' answer gives, gives the answer. He says this, The Son of Man is no slave to the Sabbath. He's in charge of it. Question, is God just in charge of the Sabbath day or all days? All days. But if you're going to elevate one day and make it all important and actually sap the life of God out of it, he's going to say, look, I'm in charge of that. Don't serve the rules, serve the ruler. Today's the second question that Jesus is going to answer. Should we destroy life or save it on the day that is set apart for God? Here's a quick Sabbath review from last week. Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments, kind of important. God gifted it to his people as a one day out of every seven vacation from the norm, just setting that stuff down. And frankly, it was to review And set their mind back on this truth. I'm a good father. That's who I am. You're beloved. That's who you are. That's the most important thing about you. Kids, adults have this weird thing when they introduce each other right after the name, sometimes before the name. They give the title of their job as what's most important about them. Oftentimes it's, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I am blank. And if the word is uh, some title, immediately here's, here's, a, here's a rotten thing that adults tend to start doing. 
They don't just hear the name and see an eternal soul that God made in his image. Instead, they look and they immediately begin to rank and say, oh, you're a this. I need to defer to you because your title is something more prestigious in this land than my title. Or, sweet, everyone else's title in this room is somehow under me. And people begin to rank and shuffle and file in. And if a person is unemployed, that's their title, they will look down in shame and say, well, I'm kind of in between careers, I'm exploring new ideas, and they sort of just shift it around. God is gifting the Sabbath, and this happens every week in this church, and we have employers and employees that sit together in family worship, equal at the foot of the cross, equal in need of grace, celebrating our good father, sitting around the family table. And the most important thing about us is that we're in the family. Not that we're the boss tomorrow morning. Not that we're the lowest on the totem pole tomorrow morning. And that's a really beautiful thing, and that's a part of why God gifted Sabbath. So Jesus asked this question, should this day of Sabbath be for saving or destroying. Now the answer seems incredibly obvious, but catch this. Some really, really smart people missed it. So let's kind of zoom our brain in and think for a second so we don't do the same thing. All right? Everyone have a rubber band? All right, pull it out. Um, here are the two ground rules. Number one, safeguard that your rubber band does not leave your hand during this time, okay? That's, that's rule number one. Everyone who just said, ah, you're a rule breaker, all right? Um, I'm not even going to comment on what I just saw over here. Secondly, that's the first rule. The second rule is have fun, all right? Here we go. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to think about your rubber band, and I want you to think about work, and I want you to think about rest, okay? And your creative minds are going to come up with things that make sense to you, this little rubber band, if you let it, is going to teach you some things. It's going to remind you of some things. It's going to show you some things. Now, um, let, me, let me say first of all this, uh, that you don't, you don't have the ability to look around the whole room, um, but some of you have a certain type of rubber band, and some of you have a different type of rubber band. Um, each rubber band that you received... Uh, has a different amount of stretch and size to it. This side of the room and this side of the room, you guys have different. It's even different thicknesses. There's a lot here that we could talk about, but the reality is God gives us different ability to stretch and different ability to work and different size plates. of. When someone says, my plate is full, some are talking about a little tiny plate like this, and some are talking about a giant platter. Why is that? It's because God gives us different size rubber bands. Here's something else. Each one of you just received this as a gift. You didn't have it coming in. Someone else handed it to you. God gifts you work. Again, I rarely get hearty amens on that. But God gifts you work, purpose, something to do. I Trust me, you want that. That's a good thing. That's before the curse. Work is initiated. And God gifts you rest. He gives it to you as sheer gift. Now, here's something that we all know. Right now, you could take this gift of work and rest and use it for evil, couldn't you? 
It's not like I'm planting ideas in anyone's mind. You already are thinking it. You guys are showing incredible restraint by not doing it. You know what? Hear me. Work and rest can become a little G God that's used for evil. It can inflict self-harm. It can inflict harm on those sitting closest to you. It could inflict a lot of harm in the person up front talking. So let's, let's leave it at that. Let me keep going. When we think about rest, um, we, we think about the fact that if you were to take this rubber band and just keep it going like this uh, through all kinds of weather and all kinds of seasons, day after day after day after day after day after day after day, eventually it would wear down and break. Right? So rest gifted to us one day in seven is to say this. You have incredible need to stop. You are not a machine. Here's something else. Rest protects us from some of our propensity to overwork. We just constantly stretch and stretch. Some of you are brave enough that you're going to really say, like, let's see how, let's see the breaking point of this thing. If you keep stretching and stretching and stretching, at some point it will snap and you will feel a little tinge of pain. Let that be a lesson to you. That, that, that there is a guarding point to overstretching yourself, to overworking and breaking. Some of you could stand up here and give testimonies about the time you came to your senses because you were overworked. You just worked and worked and worked. You know what else it does, though? It actually gives a little picture of some of your propensity to underwork. It's the sin of laziness. It's the sin of sitting around and doing absolutely nothing. You see other people stretching the rubber band, using it, turning it into cool toys, making a catapult out of it, letting it do all kinds of incredible stuff. Yours just sits there. That is a, that is a commentary on the fact that you're supposed to be doing something. So this little rubber band can teach you not to overwork, not to underwork. Here's another thing it can teach you. It protects uh, the temptation of the employers in the room, the bosses in the room, the ones who make the rules in the room, of using their workers without rest. Bosses, hear me. Your workers are not rubber bands. They're not machines. Avoid the temptation of using them, using them, using them, using them, using them, without ever acknowledging their humanity. God didn't even need to rest. He did it to model it for us because he knew we would need rest. How many of you are hungry for Chick-fil-A today? I'm always more hungry for Chick-fil-A on Sunday than any other day of the week. Don't you love Chick-fil-A being closed on Sunday? I love that. Study your history. This used to be all of America. And you know what? It was done out of reverence for God's idea of, hey, it's the Lord's day. Let's take a day of break. Let's have a day of rest. Let's have one day in seven uh, where, where we're just shut down. Here's another thing. Isn't it true that rest refreshes more than just your body? It refreshes your mind. It refreshes your soul. It sort of clears out uh, priority clutter that can happen. When you come in here and we sing some of the great truths, man, rocks are crying out in silence and praise to God. Let me figure out what that looks like. What does that look like to just be silent and shouting praise to God? So the rest that we have is for more than just physical. It's emotional and mental and spiritual as well. 
Here's something else that rest does. It breaks the numbing effect of nonstop routine. Part of why God gives us, we're going to celebrate Easter. Uh, Do we celebrate the resurrection in here every single Sunday? Of course we do. But isn't it great that God gave us feasts and festivals in certain times of the year to like really make it different and think differently about it? One day in seven, we have an opportunity to come and just sort of reorient our whole mind and week around that. Here's something else that rest does. It keeps the more monster on its leash. What is the more monster? The more monster is this. The more I work, the further I get up the chain in the company, the more I can advance. The more I work, the more accolades I get. More people pat me on the back and say, hey, good job for that. Great job. Thanks for coming in overtime. The more I work, the more money I get. The more money I get, the more stuff I can buy. You know what one day in seven, shutting everything down says? It says, more monster, you're on a leash. I know that at some point, enough is enough. And on Sundays, I'm going to actually stop and think, when's enough? Isn't church a good place to stop and think about what enough is? And if enough is here, watch this, and God keeps filling, you know what Sundays are for? It's for dreaming about, God, why are you entrusting me with so much more? Maybe it's to give it away. Maybe enough is right here, and I've drawn that line, and I know that. And so in a joyful act of worship, all this surplus, I'm not going to buy storage units and keep storing it and storing it and storing it. That's foolishness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out what it is God wants me to do with that. Two more. It nurtures our appetite for God and spiritual food. When you figure out who you are apart from your daily routines, Monday through Friday... It opens up a whole new world to you. If you are fasting and praying today because you say, you know, it's the Lord's day and I'm going to go without food. When you go without food to seek God, it awakens a spiritual appetite in you. It awakens things for God. Some of you are basically fasting from work today. You have every capability actually sitting right in the palm of your hand called your phone where you could start achieving more things off your to-do list for tomorrow. And you know what you said? No. You're going to set it down, create a boundary, and say, that's for tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Today's a day of remembering and celebrating my good father. Today's a day of being present, sitting at the family table, looking at my siblings and rejoicing at what a motley crew we are and what a great father we have and how great it is to be a son or daughter of God. Lastly at this, rest awakens us to fresh possibilities that are only seen when some distance is created from our deadlines and all the demands placed on us. You know what I know about myself? I walk in Monday. I love my job. I love what I get to do. But it's overwhelming. There are demands and deadlines that are ever pressing in on me and yapping at me and talking to me. And if I can take time and carve it out and say, this is the Lord's day, this is the Lord's time, then we're able to see fresh possibilities. God gave us good works to do, and we are to learn as a body to devote ourselves to good works. Student, you know what most of those good works are? They're already done for you. They're called papers and reading and tests and showing up for class. Those are good works. If you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a stay-at-home dad, you know what good works are? You know what they are. It's wiping jelly off the refrigerator, the outside of the refrigerator. It's making sandwiches. It's cleaning up after that. It's doing the laundry. It's tending to the chores of the house. 
If you work for Apple, your good work is to show up at work and to do the stuff that you're employed to do. That's a vast majority of what the good works are. Rest allows us to enter into those in joyful worship rather than have to more as a get to. Now, the good works are also those things that we can dream about that don't reside just in our day-to-day stuff. Here's question two, and here's verse six of Luke chapter six. Should we destroy life or save it on the day set apart from God? Here it is. On another Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save a life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Remember from last week, you might be a Pharisee if, you might be a Pharisee if, You watch Jesus compulsively, not to be refreshed and comforted, but so that you can prove you are the best lawyer. Think about this for a second. The text says that the Pharisees were watching him closely for a miracle. They're watching to see if he's going to heal a man. Not so they can believe the obvious sign confirming Jesus' claim that he's the Son of God, but rather to catch him in a rules infraction. This is the pinnacle of wrong priorities, of not seeing what is needed, but rather consequences for the rules violation of Sabbath-keeping. Uh, We've had a church-wide effort to put on a conference that we've done for years now called Empowered to Connect. The last two days, Friday and Saturday, uh, about 30-some people were in this room um, getting trained in Empowered to Connect, which is geared at those who are parenting or working professionally with kids from foster and adoptive care. But it's really so much more than that. It's really about human connection. And let me just share share this. The, The heart of the teaching is this. It's meeting needs through both structure and nurture in a moment-by-moment dance. So structure and nurture are constantly going on versus leading only with nurture, which often if you think of nurture parenting, for instance, what you think and associate with that is probably permissiveness. Nurture means no rules or structure only which you would associate authoritarian. That's all rules. And the heart of Empowered to Connect is as you interact with people, our relationships need structure. That's a good and godly thing. Those are positives. But they also need nurture. And we tend to get it wrong by veering off to either side. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. There's a heart as we say that around NBC. There's a heart of this teaching in that. There was a woman who shared yesterday... 
about how skilled she was as a parent at this. See if you identify. When my kid does this, I do this. If they do the right thing and and all that, I praise. When they violate and step out, I create the consequence and I follow through well. She said, I was really good at that. I was really good at they do this, I do that. And then she got this teaching and she said, I felt so convicted because she realized how wrong her priorities were. How what happened was the rules began to elevate far above the relationship. And she said, I was so deeply convicted, but I found it so hard to change. Why? And here's what she said. Because I had 35 years of training. With this happens, I do this. That happens, I do that. So because of those 35 years of training, which was trained around consequences for behavior, rather than meeting the need, she found it very difficult to unlearn. But she was a person in progress, and she was making progress. A big thing we heard for two days was this, that behavior is the language of unmet need. Behavior is the language of unmet need. So there's a huge difference in asking, what does my child need? Versus, what does this behavior deserve? Do you know why I'm bringing up Empowered to Connect? Because as I'm listening to Empowered to Connect through the lens of being a parent and a pastor of a church that has a lot of children uh, at this place, I began to see our text this morning. You know where the Pharisees land? What does this behavior deserve? That's it. Man with a withered hand, that's a need. (laughs) It couldn't be more obvious. But they were so far into their structure. They were so far into being careful, staring at the lines, that they missed the good that was right in front of them. Relationship over rules is Christ-like. Jesus meets needs. We've been watching him for weeks now. Break protocol. Is he breaking the law? No, he actually isn't. He's actually restoring what the law was saying in the first place. Now, Jesus lovingly instructs, and it doesn't always look kind and tender and soft-spoken as we see. He also knows really dramatic uh, tension. He puts the spotlight on the man by saying, here, you come stand right here. And then he says this. He's the one now asking questions, not people asking him questions. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life, or to destroy it? And then looking around at them all. We don't know how long that pause was, but can you imagine that synagogue that morning? I mean, just catching eyes with Jesus. He knew their thoughts. You want to talk law to me? You want to talk what's allowed? Is it allowed to heal this guy or not? And he just sat there and looked around at them. And then our central truth comes out. Life in God is not bound by this 24-hour period called the Sabbath. And he restores the man's hand. Now what should have produced praise and wonder instead stirs up rage and prompts meetings to shut this thing down. You will miss the good all around you, Christian or not, if your gaze is on the lines and the rules. You will miss God if your gaze is on the lines. Churches have a long history of swallowing camels while carefully avoiding mosquitoes. Am I right? 
We all have our stories about this. There's a great little book by a guy named Mike Iaconelli. He's now home with the Lord, but he was a youth pastor in Northern California. And just the title of the book gives a little snapshot of what he's like. Getting Fired for the Glory of God. And he used to write some articles um, in, in, a, in a magazine directed at youth pastors. And here's what he says. He talks about uh, a young idealistic college student who ends up in one of the worst housing projects in Philadelphia. Listen. A brand new Christian, this wide-eyed urban missionary, didn't have a clue how to evangelize in the middle of the city. Frightened and anxious to share his new faith, the young man approached a very large, intimidating uh, tenement house. Cautiously making his way through the dark, cluttered hallways, he walked up a flight of stairs and heard a baby crying. The baby was inside one of the apartments. He knocked on the door and was met by a woman holding a naked baby. She was smoking, and she wasn't in the mood to hear about Jesus. She cursed at the boy and slammed the door. The young man was devastated. He walked outside, slumped down on a street curb, and cried. Look at me, he said to himself. How in the world could someone like me think I could tell anyone about Jesus? Then the young man looked up and saw a dilapidated old store on the corner. It was open. He went inside and walked around. It was then that he remembered the baby in the tenement was naked and the woman was smoking. So he bought some, t- some diapers and a pack of cigarettes and headed back to the woman's apartment. He knocked on the door and before the woman could start cursing at him, he slid the cigarettes and diaper inside the front door. The woman invited him in. The student played with the baby. He put the diaper on the baby even though he had never put a diaper on any baby before. And when the woman asked him to smoke, he smoked. Even though he'd never smoked before. He spent the whole day playing with the baby, changing diapers, and smoking. Late in the afternoon, the woman asked him, What's a nice college boy like you doing in a place like this? He told her all he knew about Jesus. took about five minutes. When he stopped talking, the woman looked at him and said, Pray for me and my baby that we make it out of here alive. He prayed. This young man's story is a freedom story. Because of his freedom in Christ, he was led by the Holy Spirit to change diapers and, well, smoke. If this young man were in your youth group and gave a testimony, I have a strong feeling many Christians wouldn't be celebrating his freedom in Christ. They'd be asking you what was going to be done about his indiscretion. Freedom in Christ makes us nervous. And that's, that's a good thing. It should make us nervous. <laughs> now, here's the wrong thing. People hear stories like this, and here's where, here's where rule makers and followers go. They develop new evangelism. things. If they see it as a good thing, that's called, you know, diaper and smoking evangelism. And they go and try and replicate this. Isn't that missing the point completely? Yeah. But I think equally missing the point would be immediately firing this guy from his post for saying, how dare you go in with a woman? Don't you know that's indiscretion? How dare you smoke? Don't you know that's not what Christians do? How dare you, you know, change a diaper without more than two or three people gathered around who are background checked by the state? I have a hunch, Christians, that if we aren't once in a while bumping up and going, I am completely out of my element, but I really feel like this is from the Spirit. 
that we may be more in tune following the rules that are lifeless than following Jesus who gives life and freedom. Remember last week taking candy from strangers? When dad was right there saying to the child, it's okay, do this. I'm here. I'm bigger than the rules. Take the candy from this stranger, then take it. There was a way bigger picture going on uh, than could be seen at the time. I want to show you the Sabbath struggles that all of us struggle with. There's a Pharisee struggle going on in all of us. Some of you in this, uh, this morning wouldn't call yourself progressive Christians, but you might be able to be labeled more on the progressive side of Christianity. And when you hear about this argument with the Pharisees and the Sabbath and all of this, you might think this, how foolish, uptight, narrow-minded, and narrow-hearted these people are. Christ came to make us free, to throw off all entanglements. Progressive Christians see themselves as righteous revolutionaries with little need for rules. I have a verse for you. Ready? It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The examples for us, this great cloud of witnesses, they don't throw off the pursuit of holiness, nor do they throw off diligence to run the race on course. They throw off the weights that slow them down. They throw off sin that entangles them. Now, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're more of a traditional Christian. You wouldn't call yourself that because no one wants to be a traditional Christian. But you lean this way. And you see this story with the Pharisees, you say, how pitiful those Pharisees are. The word of life is right in their midst, and they miss out because they don't exegete properly. If only they knew their Old Testaments better, they would have worshipped Jesus. You see yourself as a righteous ruler. You wield chapter and verse to dispense rules without relationship. And Jesus has a word for you. It's found in John 5. Where he says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. A life of indulgence. A life of, of pious religiosity about rules. Jesus wants to show us a third way. A better way. He is a revolutionary. But instead of throwing off the old way of the law, he comes to fulfill the written law, which was always a pointer to a greater law, the law of love. And he came to live that life. Jesus fills in the colorful picture that the lines reveal. Take your rubber band out one more time. What does this mean? If you take a rubber band and you put it around your wrist, what, what, what could that signify? A reminder. I want you to take me up on this. Consider taking your rubber band home and leaving it on your wrist for a second as a reminder. Because you know what? You will forget that, that who God is is a good father. You will forget that who you are, the most important thing about you, is that you're the beloved. So use this rubber band as a reminder. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 1, just listen to this. Those years of perfectionist performance that have been driven into you, those years of consequence-first mentality 
will find its way into your relationships. Listen to, to Galatians 1.6, where Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. I would like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning in the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Church, I want you to be free in Christ. I want you to start with faith and then complete things in faith, not complete them in works. One of the community group questions this week is this. Have rules, structures, or systems blinded you to the preciousness of the people they are meant to serve? If you're a parent, this is a great question to wrestle with. If you're a boss, if you're a roommate, and the follow-up question is this, what corrective steps need to be taken today? Let me invite the band to come on up, and I'm going to close giving you these three things. The big principle that we talked about last week was do the right things for the right reasons, motive matters. Here's some Pharisee-busting parameters to, to give you. One is this. Remember, I live by faith. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's the second one. I live in Jesus. John 15, Jesus talking. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And lastly is this, I live attentive. Isn't it true that paying attention always costs something? You're paying. It always costs something to pay attention. He goes on in verse 7 to say, say this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Be attentive to that. Pay attention to that. At the cost of paying attention to all sorts of other things. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you, that, your joy may be, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Would you close your eyes? Jesus, you are the good doctor. And your goodness is showered on people who believe in you and don't believe in you. God, you send the rain and the sunshine and you fill the lungs of the righteous 
and the unrighteous, the rebel who is booking it away from you, and the prodigal who's running home to you. God, you're so good. And Father, I pray that you would make us a church that would keep our relationship with you, our love for one another, God, not diminishing or being destroyed, but being enhanced and life-giving because of the nurture and structure that you provide for us. God, we need your grace today. We need your truth. We need your wisdom. We need your spirit to remind us of this Tuesday afternoon when it all falls apart. 